0: One of the things I have to keep reminding myself as I celebrate God's love is that uh, He loves me, but He doesn't only love me, and that His mission is big and important and just as just as crucial for the rest of the world to hear as I've heard it. Uh, for the next several months, we're going to begin every time of preaching with a prayer centered on the words of Jesus in the Gospels, where He says, "The har- the harvest is plentiful." But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the Harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. And we're gonna we're gonna begin to pray this on a regular basis because uh, Jesus commands us to pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest field. And we're also going to do it as an antidote to what is often a cynicism that settles in our hearts toward the power of the gospel. And the reality of the harvest. Because this verse promises us. That the problem is not. A shortage of souls to be saved. That we don't live in a moment in time. Where there are no more people to believe in Jesus. But rather. The harvest is plentiful. And what we're to be praying for in faith. That Jesus' words are true. Is that he would send out more and more workers. Into the harvest. So. Each week as we gather and we take this time to pray for this very thing, we'll focus on different aspects, different, different kinds of prayers, and, and praying for different groups of people. And today I want to actually lead us in prayer for our neighboring churches, for the other churches in Kansas City, that the Lord would equip and bless them to co-labor with us as we enter into the harvest. So let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we take you at your word that the harvest is plentiful. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us faith, Lord, to seek your to seek your blessing in a very particular way this morning. That we would, that we would, Lord, ask in faith, in eager expectation, Lord, even in urgency, that you would send more and more workers out into the abundant harvest. And this morning, Lord, as as we prepare to open your word, we're conscious of churches all over the Kansas City area, Lord, who are still focused on you who still love jesus who still trust your word and we lift up these churches to you lord filled with our brothers and sisters in christ and we ask god that you would bless the churches in the kansas city area with faithfulness and fruitfulness in their gospel harvesting labors god we pray that you would unite our churches under the common cause of being co-laborers in this great harvest or we pray for the pastors of these churches bless them god give them fresh faith give them hope god encourage them even as they lead in their churches today we pray these things in the name of our savior jesus amen you can be seated and uh, if you have children to dismiss the children's ministry you can do that now two weeks ago i preached a message titled uh, peak creature mode and uh, I want I want a graphic of a hawk flying through the air, you know, in front of a castle, maybe something, you know, something epic, like something that looks good on the side of a van uh, for this sermon series. But the, the whole idea is, is you know, what what's the peak creature mode? What, what what's peak humanity look like? And as we worked our way through Acts three, the beginning of Acts three uh, two weeks ago, we saw this man who had been healed, and out of his healing and his gratitude. He provided a powerful testimony simply in his joy, simply due to his joy of the power of Jesus. And I said, you know, that's peak creature mode. What does it mean to be a human being? What are we supposed to do? To what should we aspire to? What we should aspire to is to be a healed or transformed person by Jesus who can't get over the joy that, bring, that is brought to us as a reality of that transformation. So we're going to continue talking about that this morning. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 103, uh, you probably were asked a million times as a kid, as I was, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a stuntman, an astronaut, and then president of the United States. I had it all planned out. I had my 20s, 30s, and 40s planned out, and the uh, 20s was going to be a stuntman, and then in my 30s, uh, I was going to be an astronaut, and then in my 40s, I was going to become president of the United States. Angela, my wife, when she was uh, in elementary school, she had to write a paper on what she wanted to be when she grew up. And what she wanted to be when she grew up was a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) Now, by the time we met in college, we both wanted to be basically the same thing. I wanted to be a pastor, and she wanted to be a pastor's wife. And so, you know, through the the years of growing up and going to college— we both kind of settled on the same vocational aspiration. I wanted to be a pastor. She wanted to be a pastor's wife, which in complimentary in circles is the is the closest that someone can come to pastoring. Uh, so uh, we, we both aspired to love and care and lead the local church. Uh, but we thought we'd really, we're, we're, we're somewhere because we had that figured out at such a young age. We're both 18 and we both knew what we wanted to do. And we're like, hey, we could do this together. Cool. Uh, here's the problem though. No one really... No one, well, I'm sure many people told me, I just wasn't hearing, that figuring out what you want to do with your life is small potatoes compared to figuring out who you want to be. And that just nailing down an activity to consume your working hours is not really an identity. And it's actually not really the way you're going to make a difference in the world. Uh. Eventually, as we fumbled along in our 20s and 30s and now midway into our 40s, we have realized that it really doesn't matter so much what you want to do when you grow up, but it really, really, really matters who you are. You know, there's a certain point, I, for us it's mid, midlife, where you begin to realize that there is interior stuff, stuff about you, stuff in your heart, stuff going on in the way you think. There's interior stuff going on that you've been putting off, dealing with. And you've been filling your life with activities and and meaningful pursuits because there's some junk in the closet that you don't really want to sort out and deal with. And then eventually you realize, man, if I am going to move forward and become who God wants me to become, I've really got to stop asking the what questions. What do I do? And I've got to start asking the who questions. Who am I becoming? It's the kind of person that I aspire to be. Uh, I think someone would have helped me greatly if they'd come along at some point and made that point so clear, maybe with a hand on my collar. Uh, You know, some, some sort of like get my attention and really scream it at me. But the truth is you just don't listen that well when you're young. But I want to say one thing, especially if you are young, beyond what I've just said about this. You need more than a negative vision. What I mean by that is, is the first the first memories I have of any kind of self awareness or any kind of aspiration for who I wanted to be was more about the stuff i didn 't want to be and 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 that might have been informed by negative influences in my life, people that hurt me and so on and so forth, but eventually I became aware of my sin, and then I sort of had this new identity that was also was also uh, weak it wasn 't enough, and that was I, I, wanna, I don't want to have this sin in my life. I don't want to have that sin in my life. And so my sense of who I want to be, even in that case, was more informed by getting rid of vices, getting, getting rid of consistent stumbling blocks. And so if you're here and you're younger than me, I just tell you that the goal is not only to think about who you want to be, but, but check yourself and ask, is your vision for who you want to be mostly defined by things you don't want to be? It's like, well, that's not enough either. You've got to have a positive vision. And the next thing I'd say is it's got to be pretty easy in terms of conceptually. It can't be really super uh, complicated because this is something you're going to have to look on over over and over and over and over again. Well, the scripture provides a number of places where your identity, a positive vision for who you're going to be, who you should want to be is put forward. And many of them are concise, but they don't get any simpler than Psalm 103 verse 1. So here's what I propose to be the goal of human identity. This is what we should all want to be. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all, all that is within me. That's the goal. What do I want to be? I want to be a whole being entity, fully integrated Fully on the same page that is happy in God. That's the aspiration. To be a fully integrated person who every piece of me is happy in God. That's exactly what Jesus tells us is the summation of the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. So what's the vision beyond what you want to do when you grow up? beyond what you don't want to be? Well, I think the vision for peak creature mode, peak humanity is I want to be holy in love with the Lord my God. I want to find joy in every piece of me for the Lord. Now, as I teach, uh, as I prepare to teach, I often think about individuals that will hear my words who will have a special uh, special difficulty implementing them. I'm not thinking of skeptics I'm thinking of people who would just have difficulty implementing them. I never want to do that thing where Jesus describes the Pharisees of heaping burdens on men's back that they themselves cannot carry. So I often try to imagine, you know, if I'm going to talk about this thing or that thing, who, what kind of person would have great difficulty or a special trouble with uh, with, with doing this thing? So we're going to talk a lot about joy today. we going to talk a lot about whole being fully integrated joy in the Lord. And I'm thinking, who's going to have trouble with that? Well, one of the people that would have, one of the kinds of people that would have trouble with that is a person who is dealing with depression. So I'm going to use the person who is dealing with depression as sort of the the hardest case. The person that, that, that would have the most difficult time finding whole being joy in the Lord. And, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to anticipate as I speak that, I, that I'm, I'm keeping those people in mind as I present God's word this morning. There's a great book written by Ed Welch called uh, uh, Depression, when the, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. And he has a helpful reminder, and I think this is important as we talk about joy. Joy is not the opposite of depression. It is deeper than depression. Therefore, you can experience both. Depression is the relentless rain. Joy is the rock. Whether depression is present or not, you can stand on joy. So one of the things I want to be seen as I think of the hardest case when I talk about joy is no matter where you are, no matter how deep down in the the pit you are, joy is possible. Joy is not going to cure depression but it will keep you being from it will keep you from being swept away in the mud it's a rock to stand on it doesn't stop the rain but it's a place to stand on when life is extremely difficult so now let's talk about joy let's work our way through this psalm and the first point we'd say this morning is is that you have more control over your joy than you realize You have more control over your joy than you realize. Look back at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We use the Bible as a manual for how the human being works. And we need to note, just early on in the psalm, that David is commanding his soul to do something. He is commanding all that is within him, to do something. The Psalms are the largest book in the Bible right there in the middle. And uh, if if the psalmist didn't believe they could command their emotions. If the psalmist didn't believe they had power over the way they felt about things. The whole book of Psalms will be missing from your Bible. What the book of Psalms is at some fundamental level. level is, is an individual speaking either to himself or to another group of people saying... This is the truth, and this is how you must feel about this truth. So what we need to note is that David assumes a certain level of control and authority over the joy that he experiences. Therefore, he commands his soul and all that is within him, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So that's good news. You're not a victim. You're not helpless. You have, according to God's word, control and authority over the way you feel about things. You know, uh, uh, we, can, we can discuss all sorts of different psychological models for how people integrate themselves and handle the various elements of themselves. So, you know, the intellect and the, and the emotion and, and so on and so forth. But here's, here's what I would tell you you are right now letting some part of you lead. Functionally speaking, you're allowing some part of you to lead your experience as a human. And the Bible puts forward, as far as the choice goes, puts forward the intellect, surprisingly, as the place where this leadership is is leveled. I'm not saying that that all of our life flows out of our mind because the Bible says that the heart is the wellspring of life. But what I am saying is that when it comes to working on ourselves and working on who we're going to be, it all begins with truth. It all begins with truth. It begins with the reception of correct information. So what do you think you're going to see in this psalm? is that in an effort to stoke or kindle joy in his whole being, he starts with his mind. And that's, that's point number two. Gratitude. Gratitude is probably the greatest tool you have in cultivating a heart full of joy. And what I want you to see is that the psalmist then lists, verse two, Bless the Lord, O my soul, And forget not all his benefits. What I want you to see is that he's using a list, which is an intellectual exercise, to activate his whole soul's joy in God. Look at verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good. So that your youth is renewed. Like the eagles, what is David's approach to cultivating whole being joy in God? He makes a list, which at its beginning is a purely intellectual exercise. So I'm asking the question of the hardest cases in the room, how can I become a person who has whole being joy in God? And I say, well, it might actually start by intentional exercises in gratitude. It might actually begin with what we would think of as just a list. The truth is, is that that piece of choice, that that, that, that that exercise of the will, where we begin to reject forgetfulness and seek to establish cognitively, this is what God's done for me. There's something about that that God uses to change everything inside of us. Now, I, I make it a rule. Like, I don't want to talk about things that you could just Google on your own. Like You can get there yourself. Google the science of gratitude. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to belabor this point. It is well established that gratitude is transformative. It's a transformative practice. Everyone thinks so. Now, I, I have trouble figuring out what gratitude looks like if there's not a person you're thanking. I've been with people who don't believe in the Lord and they think the universe. But I, I think even there, there's a personification that's happening. But the point is, is that it's well-established. Scientifically, gratitude actually does change you. And that's what Psalm, the psalmist is doing. He's saying, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. How? Forget not. All his benefits. And then he begins to list the benefits of the Lord. So if gratitude is so powerful, why don't we use it? Why don't we actually, especially when we're down, just go down, go, sit in front of a piece of paper and a, and a pen and do this thing? Why, if gratitude is so powerful, why don't we exercise gratitude? Well, you know, there are a lot of reasons over the years, as we've done biblical counseling, we see some patterns. And the first one is trauma. One of the reasons why you might not be reflexively leaning into gratitude is because you've been hurt. When the human mind undergoes physical or emotional trauma, it begins to create a pattern of thinking that is mostly concerned about what could go wrong. So God has created our brains, after we've been hurt, to go on the alert, to go on the defensive, and to evaluate reality by what other threats are out there. What else could hurt me? What else could go wrong? So one of the ways we get off of the gratitude train is we've been hurt. And our brains actually start working differently as a result of that trauma and it doesn't necessarily have to be you being hurt simply being around people who are undergoing deep pain can create this same thing there really is like there really is a secondhand smoke there really is a secondhand trauma and i i i have experienced it many times in my pastoral life where walking with someone who has gone through or is going through great pain starts wearing my soul down and starts turning my Thinking in this direction. I actually believe, and I I really don't care if this makes you a wimp or or not, It, it doesn't really matter to me, but the truth is, I believe disappointment. Disappointment might be traumatic enough on some of us at certain times, if the disappointment is significant enough, to get our minds tracking in a negative light, where we begin to evaluate our reality by what could go wrong. Well, of course, if this is the way you're thinking, if you're evaluating everything by what else could hurt me, well, that's the way you're thinking, right? You're not, you can't do gratitude and that. You know, you can't, you can't count your blessings and assess your threats with equal vigor. You kind of have to choose what kind of way you're going to think, what kind of person you're going to be, so one of the reasons why I think people jump off the gratitude train is because uh, it, it, they neglect the, the practice of gratitude is because they've been hurt. Now, if you've been hurt and you know you've been hurt, boy, I wish you'd just do what I asked you to do. And for 30 days at least intentionally practice gratitude where you thank God. And you might say, oh, my goodness, Chris, you know, that's going to be so rote and mechanical and it's just gonna be me coldly sitting in front of a piece of paper writing things down. I know, I know. But maybe if you trust God's word a little bit here, you'd see. God does a lot through mechanical rote disciplines. So if you are if you know that you've been hurt, if you know, would you do me a favor? Would you actually, if you know you've been disappointed, would you would you do me a favor and just say, you know what? That, that, that guy, Chris, you know, I know he loves me and I think he knows what he's doing sometimes. I'm just going to do what he asked me to do. And I'm going to take 30 days and I'm going to sit in front of a piece of paper every day and I'm going to intentionally list ways that God has been good to me. So that's one way. Uh, another reason why we can forsake the practice of gratitude is is just homeostasis. We are constantly adapting to the new normal. So I don't know if I saw this in a movie or if I read about it, but uh, the whole idea is familiar to all of us. The celebrity divorce where uh, a rich guy marries, like a rich person marries someone who had no money and then they get divorced like three years later. And then there's like the lawsuit for alimony and the person who had nothing always sues for a considerable amount of monthly alimony and they always say something like um, uh, the, the plaintiff requests... You know, ten thousand dollars a month in 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 support to support the lifestyle to which they've grown accustomed. It's like you lived in a trailer three years ago, and like you've you've got accustomed really quick. But that's that's actually that's actually what we do. Um, We get used to the showers, the lavishness of God's grace far too quickly. We, we are homeostatic beings. We actually just adjust to the new normal very quickly. And so God may be just, he is being wonderful to you. And it is far too easy to forget his benefits in a homeostasis kind of way. Uh, the third reason why you might have forsaken gratitude is pride. Um, if you've bought into a lot of the nonsense that you can, you can access just about everywhere, uh, you may have fallen into the trap of thinking you deserve things. And if you have, well, I, here's the problem with that. You, you can't be grateful for something you think you deserve. So so your, your experience of gratitude and your expectation of what you deserve are directly inverse in proportion. If you think you deserve it, what are, how, there's nothing to be grateful for. So one of the ways that pride derails our gratitude is, is, is the sense of deserving. But, but another is, is that a, a more insidious form is that we, slowly over time, allow our self-perceptions to overrule God's word. So what we think and what we feel matters more than what God says. Look at verse 6. The Lord, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord... Is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Honestly, that's incredibly sweet and incredibly beautiful. You know, look at verses 11 and 17 just as an example. God's love is connected to big things, space and time. So verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth. It's been a while since I'd looked at any of this, and so I I got on Google and started reading about distance and space. It's so hard to conceptualize that I forget it very quickly so we can see about 13.8 billion light years into the future, right, or into the into space right now. Uh, if you wanted to walk a single light year, you'd need 500 billion days. Uh, those numbers don't even make sense to me. The sun, the sun is 864,000 miles wide. Wide. That's 92 million miles away from us. I mean, as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. I, that's it's big. Verse 17, you've got another big thing. Uh, in verse 11, you've got space. In verse 17, you've got time. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. How much does God love us? He loves us bigly and longly. I I mean, there's just simply no way to conceptualize these things. The psalmist is using language that is intended to provoke our jaws hitting the floor. And then sandwich right in the middle, sandwich right in the middle of bigly and longly, You've got verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. You've got cosmic and kind, right? This is the basic appeal. I always like to speak to people who are investigating the faith. This is the basic appeal, in my opinion, of Christianity. It is a God with sovereign cosmic transcendence who is also near like the best father in the world. Better than the best father in the world. This is the basic appeal. I believe that Christianity offers through Jesus that the God who is sovereign over every atom who is timeless, eternal, vast, immeasurable, is is better than the best dad on his best day. Maybe this little excursus into God's love is kindling your heart right now and making you grateful. But again, maybe it's not. And if it's not, why? Why? Well, Ed Welts in that book on depression, I've got to I gotta include this. He says, part of the depressive syndrome is that you are immensely loyal to your interpretation of yourself and your world. If God says you are forgiven in Christ, you create new rules that mandate condition, penance, self-loathing. If God says he loves you, you insist it is impossible. There it is. Your system is higher than God's. And I include that quote because that is not merely for the depressed individual. This is how we stop being grateful. Our system becomes higher than God's. Our perception of ourselves and our world becomes more dominant than the Lord's. And so I could talk about the big and long love of God. I could talk about this transcendence and this imminence and glory <laughs> in the sweetness of this unique God presented in all of the history of the world as someone who is sovereign and so sweet. And it could fall flat. And if it is, here's why. Pride. It's very possible that's the why. Pride. Your perceptions are more stirring and more provoking to you than God's truth. There's there's another possible reason um, for why we stop being grateful and and it could be spiritual stagnation. Sometimes your experience of God's redeeming love is just more distant than it ought to be. Uh, Back in the day, uh, Chris Farley had this sketch on SNL called The Chris Farley Show. And (laughs) he would interview Real celebrities and ask the lamest questions imaginable. And I remember he interviewed Paul McCartney. Now, and he and this is this is the opening question. He says, "Hey, hey, hey, do you remember when you were in the Beatles?" McCartney said, "Yeah." And Farley said, "That was cool." <laughs> like you know, every the whole interview was that difficult. You know. I just love that. Um, Guys, uh, I am all about remembering that Jesus saved us. But if your appreciation for God's redeeming love is primarily past tense, I think we may have found a reason for your lack of joy in gratitude. If gratitude for you is mostly about going back, hey, do you remember that time? When you saved me, Jesus, that was cool. There's going to be a limitation to the practical experience of joy in your life. I want us to tense test our thanksgiving. Tense test our gratitude. The key is seeing that God continues to redeem you. He is at work in your present as a redeemer. Look at the tenses. In verses 3 through 5. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are things that God is doing right now. Not only things that God once did. Look at verses 6 through 10. Again, notice the tenses. How many of the things in verses 6 through 10 are present? How many things are past and how many things are future? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. A lot of present and future in that passage. Is one reason for your low joy a mostly backward-looking, stagnated relationship with the redeeming love of God? There is a lot of difference, a lot of basic, practical, joy, experience, difference between a God who saved me and a God who is saving me. Between a God who helped me and a God who is helping me. So I want you to, I want you to go through some questions with me. Maybe this will help you to see why there may be low joy A neglect of gratitude. And I want to work through a few of these verses and ask questions in response. It says, He forgives all your iniquity. Talk to me about your confession of your sin to the Lord every day. Are we confessing thoughts? Are we confessing fears? Are we catching ourselves in negative moments of self-pity? Are you engaged on a daily basis in the redeeming work of Jesus over your soul for the sins, for the iniquities you commit every day? Or did you just somehow arrive a number of years ago where all of the really bad ones were knocked off the list? Or maybe you're one of those insufferable Christians who never had any of the really bad ones. You're a piece of cake. <laughs> your whole experience with God, I don't understand. I don't. I don't experience, I don't understand it. But talk to me about your confession. Ange and I found years ago, as we were talking about just being distant from the Lord and what was going on and so on, I think it was Ange that said, you know, uh, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven and whose iniquities the Lord does not count against, them. blessed means happy. And she's like, you know, sometimes the best way to get happy in God is for me to just shut up and listen to the Holy Spirit speaking about the many places where confession has not occurred, where my sensitivity to the reality of my ongoing sinfulness has simply been calloused. And I don't experience a redeeming Relationship, a redemptive relationship with God ongoing. He doesn't forgive in present tense all my iniquities. That's not my experience because I don't think about my iniquities anymore. Unless they get really bad, I just simply don't walk through my day thinking about a constant need for the Lord's forgiveness. If that's where you are, it's going to be really hard to have a fully rearview mirror kind of faith. That brings joy. He heals all your diseases. Talk to me about your awareness of ongoing, indwelling sin, long term patterns of thinking, tendencies, things that you need the Lord to heal you from today. He redeems your life from the pit. What does that mean? Well, there are lots of possible pits. What pit are you in right now? You probably dug it yourself. But you might not have. What pit are you in right now? What long-standing patterns of sin or disobedience are, are ongoing in your life? Where are you stuck? Would you like God to get you out of that pit? There's also a pit that you would not be in if it weren't for God's law, or a pit that you would be in if it weren't for God's law. You know, God forbids you to do something. Be grateful. He's just keeping you out of a pit. Friends, you could go through the Bible and see all the things God tells you not to do and say, thank you, sir. Can I have another after every one? Because they are all expressions of his care in keeping you out of innumerable pits you could be grateful for a whole day just simply thinking about all the things god forbids thank you lord the pit you'll wind up if god doesn't hold you is hell we don't like to think about hell but gosh i wonder what effect not thinking about hell has on our gratitude I'm really concerned in particular for Christians who are a little further down the road. And I'm concerned that you are not as aware of your deep sinfulness as you need to be. And I'm concerned that you may not be aware of your deep sinfulness as you need to be. Because over time, you've self-selected a group of peers who share your sins. To the extent that you just don't notice them in the way that you should. We can self-select a peer group over time who have sin, ongoing sin in their lives, but it's the same one as us. And so it doesn't stand out as much. Well, if your experience of God's ongoing redemption is limited because you don't see your need for God's ongoing redemption, well, the joy in your salvation is going to be Limited as well. If you're a younger Christian, if you're a younger person, I'm really concerned that you don't simply affix on, again, this is at the beginning of the message, man, if I could get rid of this thing. Friends, your whole life, your whole experience, every day of your life is paid for by the blood of Jesus applied. In an ongoing, like not applied in an ongoing way, but applied over your many sins. Over your many ways, sinful ways of thinking. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Friends, is, is the crown of your life the steadfast love and mercy? What's the crown? It's like, this is the thing that I am most aware of and grateful for. Paul talks about boasting only in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. The crown, the the, the crown that I would boast in, the thing that I would would want to be most known about myself is that I have the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord upon me. I love in our text how it says that the Father shows compassion. Not only that the Lord has shown compassion, but that he shows compassion. Obviously, we know from Romans 5 that the Lord has shown compassion. He's shown love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is that initial and and eternal adoption that comes through justification through Jesus. But then it says he continues to show, he continues to show and show and show and show this redeeming love. And I am jealous for you to experience that. The table set before us today as as an intention for you to receive and participate in this this ongoing demonstration of God's love for you. I'm, I'm hopeful today as you partake in the Lord's table, as you celebrate what Jesus has done for you, that you are also conscious of what Jesus is doing for you. That your faith would be brought back up to the present tense and that your joy would follow. Let me pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us. If, if a person is here today who has not entered into fellowship with you by believing in your perfect life, death, and resurrection, not believing in their sin, in in their sin on, on you on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would bring them into the family of God, that you would transform them. I'm also quite aware, Lord, that there are a number of people here today who are not only yours, but have been yours for quite some time. Help them, Lord, to aspire to the goal of being fully happy in you. That they would bless you with all that is within them. God, give them faith to believe your word when your word says to forget not all your benefits. That that's an ongoing practice in gratitude. God, renew the joy, restore the joy of our salvation. This morning I pray in Jesus' name.